Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 4th, 2011, and my guest is Bruce Caldwell of Duke University. He's the author of, among other books, Hayek's Challenge, and he's the general editor of the collected works of F.A. Hayek. Bruce, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here, Russ. Our subject today is F.A. Hayek, an economist who comes up fairly often uh, on this program, and he's having a very good run. Uh, here we are in 2011, and this past year saw a, uh, a rap video that John Popola and I uh, created on Hayek's ideas that uh, has over 2 million hits on YouTube, uh, a love song to F.A. Hayek. I hadn't <laughs> expected that by Dorian Electra. It's in the Last time I looked was in the tens of thousands of views. I don't know where it is lately, but it's been uh, had a, a charming uh, run of success. The Road to Serfdom hit uh, number one on Amazon thanks to an endorsement and discussion by Glenn Beck. So uh, he's very relevant, and we're going to talk today about why. Our plan is to talk about his life, his ideas, and his work, particularly what someone might read who's just getting started. So let's begin with his life. Give us a brief sketch. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about his life. Okay. So Hayek uh, is contemporaneous, basically, with the 20th century. He was born in 1899 and died in 1992. Indeed, this was one of the reasons that I was interested in, in him as a, uh, a figure to study, because uh, he was there uh, over a period of time when economics really changed in many ways. And he participated in and also opposed some of those changes through the course of his life. So he's a he's a he's a good figure to to study economics in the 20th century as well as himself. So born in Vienna in 1899, he served uh, during World War One. Uh, following the war, he entered the University of Vienna. He was a uh, student at Friedrich uh, von Wieser. Uh, he got his degrees in the early 1920s. Um, he had a number of distinguished classmates. Uh, Fritz Machlup and Gottfried Habeler are uh, some that economists might know in particular. Uh, Oscar Morgenstern, one of the founders of game theory, was also uh, a, a fellow student at the University of Vienna. Uh, one of his professors that uh, I believe he took a course from, it's a little unclear from the record exactly, uh, whether the, the relationship in terms of coursework, but that he worked under uh, was uh, Ludwig von Mises. I uh, worked with him in a temporary office. Uh, and after getting to know Mises a little bit, uh, when he uh, finished his second degree in 1923, he went off to the United States for a period of about 15 months. Uh, the most famous economist that he met there was Wesley Clare Mitchell, uh, the father or one of the fathers of American institutionalism. Uh, someone who was just about to become the uh, president of the American Economic Association, and Hayek set in on his uh, on his class on types of economic theory. Uh, and uh, Mitchell was a Mitchell was a form a formative figure in the National Bureau of Economic Research in their collection of data. Uh, yeah. You call him an institutionalist, which covers a lot of ground, right? But what he was 
what he's still considered by many to be worth understanding is his emphasis on the importance of data, which, of course, Hayek is going to spar with him a little bit over time. Absolutely right. Uh, one of the interesting uh, aspects of this whole story is that Hayek grew up in the Austrian tradition, which had as a as one of its opponents uh, uh, in the at the end of the century the German historical school, and the German historical school had an older German historical and younger German historical school. The younger one was uh, headed up by a guy named Gustav Schmoller, who uh, said, "Well, what we need to do is gather statistics, and it's premature to try to have a theoretical understanding of social phenomena until we've." actually gathered a sufficient amount of statistics, and then we can start perhaps in the, some point in the future theorizing. So this was a school that the uh, Austrians had sparred with, and after World War I was over, the German historical school, for a variety of reasons, ended up being uh, fairly discredited. Uh, they were not able to be helpful during World War I. Uh, you know, if you just say, well, we, still have to, we just have to gather statistics, but we can't really put them together in any way, in a meaningful way or, or contribute to the war effort, uh, yeah, this, this wasn't viewed as helpful. They, they had not anticipated uh, or said, written anything about uh, 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 things like the, the, the hyperinflation. So they, they, they were more or less discredited. Hayek gets to the United States, and here's Wesley Clare Mitchell, who is um, perhaps, uh, well, as I said, about to become the president of the American Economic Association. And he's saying what we need to do is collect statistics. He's saying the same sorts of things that Schmoller had been saying, although it must be said he was much more sophisticated about the way he intended to use the statistics to help uh, experts uh, manage an economy. Now, he wasn't a socialist by any means. Uh, Mitchell wasn't. Uh, but he was somebody who thought that uh, science could be used to restructure society in in better ways, and that it was the responsibility of, of people like him and those who would be helping with the National Bureau of Economic Research to, to do so. So Hayek was in this bizarre position of, of sitting in on this guy's class no, and, and hearing him as kind of the avant-garde American economist uh, spouting ideas that he, uh, in his own experience, had felt had been uh, many of them discredited in some ways. Well, it's interesting because uh, I was uh, I took two classes on macroeconomics from Robert Lucas, and that's my only understanding of Wesley Clare Mitchell until I read uh, Hayek's Challenge. Mm-hmm. And I learned from Lucas that, that Mitchell was a very important figure because he understood that you have to have stylized facts. You, you, yes. you can't you can't have all the data you need, but you, you have to know what's to be explained. Right. And that's what Lucas learned from Mitchell. And ironically, Lucas, of course, learned also from Hayek. Um, so I, I think the issue here is data without theory is is meaningless. It's sort of like information without a filter. Mm-hmm. If you search the web without Google, um, you're going to spend a lot of time searching. What makes Google useful is it filters. So you need some kind of theory. And I think the German school, though I understand it from what you wrote, the German school – didn't think you should have too much theory. Well, that's that's going to make it a lot harder, right? And I think that you're, you're, you've captured very well the, the the difference between the two approaches. Although, you know, from from Hayek's Austrian viewpoint, he was going to see some of the similarities between the approaches as well. And, but I mean, they were also uh, the German historical school, and they were basically conservative imperialists. And that was yeah. something that Mitchell was not at all. So, I mean, there was, there was lots of other dimensions that they <laughs> differed as well. <laughs> okay, so carry on. So he comes to the United States briefly, goes back then to Europe. 
Back to Europe, sat in on uh, the Mises' uh, Privat Seminar, uh, got married, uh, is working in Vienna, and gets invited to the London School of Economics and uh, gives four lectures there, lectures that ultimately uh, get published. This is in uh, early 1931. Uh, these are published as Prices in Production. This leads to an invitation to come to the LSE as a visiting professor for a year, and this ultimately turns into a named chair. So he stays t- at the LSE then from 1932 through 1950. This is a very, very important period in his life. He's... Uh, he, he starts out engaging in a, in a big debate with uh, John Maynard Keynes about their respective theories of the cycle. He, uh, he ends up uh, debating uh, people like Frank Knight uh, over capital theory. He has debates with uh, a variety of colleagues at the LSE as well as others on the merits of uh, socialist planning. This is when he starts writing uh, uh, his works on uh, economics and knowledge. That's the name of an article that he published, but this begins his his contributions to the knowledge problem. And by the end of the decade, he's, he's working on uh, a large project that ultimately uh, uh, results in the publication of a number of articles during the war, but most importantly, the, war, uh, the road to serfdom in 1944. Let's talk uh, a little bit about, about two things that, that, I'm, that I'm very interested in and I hope listeners are as well, one of which came up in a recent podcast we did with Pete Betke on uh, Mises. Mm-hmm. And I, I remarked on the fact that it seems interesting that, and a little strange, that Hayek is is so famous and um, Mises less so for the socialist calculation debate. Partly, um, Pete suggested, partly because Mises was writing in German, and here was Hayek writing in English in this formative period in the 30s. But he was Mises's student if not literally in the classroom, in the seminar that you mentioned, and certainly as a mentor Absolutely. when he yeah. worked for him at uh, the Chamber of Commerce. What's your thoughts on the relative impact of Mises and Hayek on the calculation debate and the feasibility of socialism? Yeah, that it, it's, uh, it's strange. I actually would have thought that Mises would have been more associated with the critique of socialism. I guess in, in the American context where the road to serfdom is kind of a, a very well-known work, that, that might explain that. Well, uh, but of course, I mean, Mises, though, was the person who pointed out the difficulty of, uh, of getting rational production in, under a system in which the state owns the means of production and mm-hmm. that you don't have prices for factors of production. So that, that essential insight was there in his article back in 1920. Now, it was published in German, but it was reproduced in... Hayek's uh, uh, Collectivist Economic Planning, his book of 1935, which is basically the the book that initiated the English language socialist calculation debate. And Hayek had two uh, pieces in the book: an introductory piece and a and a concluding piece that ended up being uh, uh, reproduced in uh, in his in his collection, Individualism and Economic Order. Um, so he had those two pieces, but the middle part of the book was translations of articles, and Mises' you know, seminal article was, was there as well. And I, I mean, the point of the book was Hayek saying, look, uh, the British uh, intelligentsia is very interested in debating the merits of socialism. This debate has already been had, and there's some important uh, contributions that, that are in other languages that you're not aware of, so this is the, the point of, of, of publishing this book. So, I mean, I, I think if it, to the extent that Hayek might be better known, it would be because 
uh, of something like the 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 road to serfdom uh, being so well known in the uh, in the uh, just in the popular mind. But uh, I think to anyone who knows the debates, the, uh, Mises' central role is is. Is unmistakable. No doubt, but it is Hayek who spars with Langa. It's Hayek who spars with Morgenstern. It's to that the thirties, the middle thirties, were certainly a time when Hayek was very active and visibly involved with his intellectual uh, yes, counterparts. That's right. that's right, and and all of that took place in the English language. So I mean, certainly among English speakers, that's right. That, uh, but yeah, I mean, Mises was sparring with people in in in. in uh, in German publications as well. Yeah, no, I don't mean to downplay Mises' contribution. Yeah. I just think it's interesting how uh, how that played out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the business cycle argument and debate between uh, Keynes and 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 Hayek. I, I had a thought after reading your account of it, and I wanted to get your reaction. But first, let's lay out the issues. Um, Hayek writes in 1931 in Prices and Production. Um, the general theory comes out. In 1936, Keynes's magnum opus. He had an earlier book, which I think was Treatise on Money, which was when 1930. So Hayek writes a scathing critique of that, a scathing review, and there's a sort of historical puzzle as to why he was relatively silent about the general theory. And you could conclude, and I think many of us uh, in the mainstream of the profession would conclude that, well, he lost. Uh, Keynes's theory, you know, took the field, and uh, Hayek, um, the, the world stopped paying attention to to the Austrian business cycle theory. What's your take on on that um, that history? Okay, well, um, certainly uh, the 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 exchange that they had when Hayek first arrived in London was very significant for both of them. Um, as you said, Hayek wrote a very strong two-part uh, uh, review, critical review of a treatise on money. Uh, Keynes uh, responded to the first part of that two-part review in between the time when the first one came out in August and the next one came out in March of the next year. In, 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 somewhere in between, I think it was November, Keynes responds, and he defends his own approach to some extent, conceding some of Hayek's criticisms, but also attacks Hayek's own book. And both... It's unusual, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was viewed as highly unusual, and indeed... Uh, 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 it, it made for some entertainment. Exactly. I mean, this is as good as it gets in academia, uh, two people just going at it in the journals. Um, and and it, with colorful language. I mean, Keynes is one of these uh, extraordinary writers who, who is just impossible not... Not to just read with with, with great. He, he he writes with such uh, such color and verb, so it's 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 a good uh, match to watch. So this was their initial um, uh, encounter, and both of them had had utilized the work of the Swedish economist Knut Vicksell, and, and and Hayek I think had the better part of the of the initial encounter uh, simply because Hayek read German. Uh, Vicksell had written in German. Vicksell had written three books in German. Hayek knew all of them. Uh, integrated aspects of them into his own work, whereas Keynes had uh, uh, did not read German very well, uh, said as much in his book *Our Treatise on Money*, uh, and uh, uh, you know, did not incorporate all of the things that Vixell had had said into his own uh, uh, work. So, um, for a variety of reasons, Keynes rethinks his approach. There's the whole story about the people at Cambridge who were offering him criticisms. 
uh, the introduction of uh, of the multiplier and all these other ideas that that end up being part of the Keynesian corpus. And he he publishes book in, in 1936, and it becomes quite famous. But at the same time, Hayek is also um, working on his own revisions of his work, starting as early as 1933-34. He he said, well, I, I, this whole average period of production construct is something I'm not happy with that I took from Bon Beverk. And he's struggling. And if you take a look at Larry White's introduction to the pure theory of capital, uh, you get some idea of the problems that Hayek was having uh, in, in, in trying to put this book together. He has correspondence with Fritz Machlup where he says, look, uh, Fritz Machlup says to him, who's Machlup in the United States, when are you going to send these chapters? And Hayek says, they're almost ready in the next letter from Hayek. I, I tore it all up. I'm starting over again. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that section. And he just struggles and struggles. And finally, when he publishes his uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, revised uh, work that was supposed to be integrating capital theory into a monetary theory of the economy. It's the pure theory of capital. So he's, he's done the capital theory part. He has a few chapters at the end of that book that speak to some of the monetary theory issues. But basically, it's clear that he has not accomplished what he wanted to do. Um, now, uh, it comes out also in 1941, The World's at War, it's not going to get the kind of notice that, that Keynes's book did. Now, the full story of, of that is uh, uh, of, of the Keynesian ascendancy and the various elements that went into it is, is actually a very rich story that's probably uh, we don't have time to go into, but it, it, it was a whole combination of things that ended up uh, 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 being able to explain that. But, I mean, the, the, it, it, was, it was a fairly quick ascendancy, it must be said, uh, but certainly by, by the time the war was over, um, uh, Hayek has this, actually a famous uh, 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 recollection of Keynes where he said, Keynes uh, probably was not, would not have been that comfortable with, with many of the things that go under the label of Keynesian economics. And the last time I saw him, he said he, would, uh, he could turn around public, he was so conf- Keynes was so confident in his ability to turn around public opinion that he said, well, you know, if, if, if these problems start to arise and inflation starts to raise its ugly head, I can turn public opinion around like that, and he clicks his fingers. And then, as, as Hayek said, and six weeks later, he was dead. Um, so there we have it. So yeah. that's, a, that's a little bit of the Keynes-Hayek story. I don't know if it was responsive to all that, the, no, that's that you were exact, asking. That's exactly what I wanted to hear, what I wanted you to talk about. I, what struck me in reading your account of it uh, in Hayek's challenge is the – one, a parallel with, with Schumpeter, who also struggled to produce his great work on business cycle theory, who before 1936 was considered you know, one of the world's great economists. Mm-hmm. And Keynes eclipsed them both yes. with, with a terribly flawed work. <laughs> that if I think either of them had written it, they wouldn't have been comfortable publishing it. They would have said, well, it needs more work. It's, so there's, there's a lot of factors, as you said, that went into the, the – um, the Keynesian ascendancy, but I think it's fascinating that part of the reason I think for both Hayek and Schumpeter that their stars were eclipsed by Keynes was their acceptance that this problem was, quote, too hard. Uh, that it was, and I'm going to come back and talk about that because I don't, I think that really was Hayek's last word on, on business cycle theory. It wasn't so much, oh, it's all about, you know, monetary policy. Rather, it was, it's too hard. Um, and it's nothing to be ashamed of <laughs> that you can't, Build a complete model of capital I theory. Think the, mod- the modeling of the economy part is 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 what he, the, you know, the the complexity of the model that would need to be produced 
could be anything close to being adequate was too complex. I think that's exactly right in terms and, of high execution. And Lucas, and I think you quote Lucas saying, a modern Nobel laureate, uh, only shortly after Hayek in time, but but much later in terms of the work on the business cycle theory, Lucas saying that you know, well, Hayek and others didn't have the tools, but I think it's not clear that we have the tools still. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that later. Um, the other, I wanted to ask you one other thing about. Oh, the other thing I think it's important to emphasize here is that. Keynes's work in 1936 was not the first work on business cycle theory in economics, and his his adherents often act like it was. Um, there were a lot of people trying to understand why economies uh, rose and fell. Uh, it was a it was a it was an old problem. Right. David Laidler is one of the people, and also Bradley Bateman are two people who have uh, 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 articles that basically say. All of these things that we think about <laughs> about the Keynesian revolution are wrong, <laughs> yeah. and just goes down kind of a you know, he didn't invent macroeconomics. There was stuff going on beforehand. Uh, uh, some of these ideas that that are, were claimed to be new were, were not, and and right on down the list. Now, this is not taking anything away from Keynes as a public intellectual at all, or, or his importance in terms of impact on the 20th century. Yeah, but, incredible. But just in terms of the history, uh, a lot of the. Well, this is what historians of economics do. They, they go back and they say, well, all of these popular images are, are false in these various ways. So, Always good to learn. Yeah, it makes, makes, gives us, puts spread on the table for us. So, so the, World War II comes, and again, as a macroeconomist, certainly uh, Hayek and the Austrians are, are eclipsed by the ascendancy of Keynes. Uh, but at the end of World War II, uh, Hayek writes his most influential book, for for the public at large, road to served him. Right, and uh, the story behind that is that he didn't plan to write the road to served him. Uh, what he planned to do was a much bigger bigger work. I was always conceptualizing these huge projects. It's called the Abuse of Reason Project. It was supposed to be a two volume work. The first volume was tracing how the twin ideas of socialism and what he called scientism. That is to say, the sort of thing that he saw exhibited by Wesley Clare Mitchell, the idea that we can use science to reshape society in ways that uh, that would make it uh, work more more rationally. A very appealing idea, uh, and he encountered it everywhere uh, in the course of his life in the 20s and the 30s. He, it certainly was was part and parcel of the logical positivism that he had encountered in Vienna in the 1920s. Uh, indeed, the Mises uh, Seminar, the Mises Christ, some of the members of that were also members of the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivism, so they were fully aware of this movement within the philosophy of science that uh, basically provided the philosophical justifications for a, a, a worldview of science uh, uh, transforming society in progressive ways. He encounters it in in uh, in the person of Wesley Clare Mitchell when he's in America in the 30s. He comes to the London School of Economics, which was founded uh, by Fabian Socialists in 1895. They were sufficiently confident of the truth of socialism that they didn't care about hiring someone like a Hayek uh, 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 because they figured, well, the, the truth will out, but uh, this, is a, this is an important uh, uh, scholar, so we're happy to have him on the faculty. And he encounters the ideas there. And uh, uh, when uh, he 
looked at the historical evolution of these ideas, the what he envisioned in this grand book was well, it started. It starts way back in the French Revolution days uh, at the Ecole Polytechnique, uh, where the engineers of this Ecole uh, were also uh, uh, associating with people like Henri uh, uh, Saint Simon and Auguste Comte, who end up being um, Comte being the father of a kind of socialism and positivist ideas and positivism, in fact, uh, and uh, traces the sp- the idea was to trace the spread of those ideas from that from France to Germany to Britain to the United States. In each place, it would be very different. It would, it would take on certain national characteristics and, and characteristics according to the contingency of the of the period in which it entered. In the United States, it was the progressive movement, the idea that, that experts armed with the most modern tools could do better than, than we're doing by shaping and steering. Right, and he, and he also mentioned institutionalism in his outline. Uh, he doesn't mention progressivism itself, but it's certainly this is exactly the idea. Same exactly social right. phenomenon. Yeah. Right, right, Talk, exactly right. But, give us but, a little background before you go on on, yeah. on positivism uh, and logical positivism. What are they and why are they important for this? Okay. For this? Right. So the, the, this would be the, 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 the philosophical foundation about uh, for many of these ideas. Logical positivism is a is a movement that began in Vienna in the 1920s. Uh, the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivism is the way it's, it's often referred to. So these are philosophers saying, what is it that makes something really scientific? And they looked at a number of different sorts of problems. Uh, uh, how do you how do you uh, distinguish a scientific statement from a non scientific statement? Uh, well, we do it by testing the statements. And what counts as a good test? Is it ver- or is the statement verifiable? Is it falsifiable? These are the sorts of questions that come up. What, it, what does it mean to make a scientific explanation? They have, for example, covering law models. I mean, these, these words to, to somebody who's not conversant with philosophy of science are, is probably not, uh, doesn't communicate much, but the, but the general idea is that, uh, we want to be able to distinguish scientific thought from non-scientific thought. So how did that, that contribute to scientific socialism? How did that, that idea, which is, seems fairly plausible and, and mm-hmm. a good idea, that you should be able to test a theory, falsify a theory using data, which, which is what I associate with logical positivism, how did that get permuted into um, we need to run the country? Right. Uh, so the social science expert in the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivism was a guy named Otto Neurath. And Neurath was uh, somebody who was very critical. He actually was in Ben Bavir's seminar along with Ludwig von Mises. And in Mises' uh, uh, memoirs, uh, he talks scathingly about uh, Neurath as just, you know, he, he had great respect for many of the other socialists that were debating with Ben Bavirk in the seminar, but he had no patience with Neurath. And Norath was a guy who uh, uh, propounded a view called war economy. He said, "Well, what we should uh, the, the the capitalist system is 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 a de- is a defective system. What we should do is have a moneyless system where everything is planned from the center, uh, and we'll uh, we 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 can do this. We have central planning of this sort during a war when when the government takes over control of the productive uh, apparatus, and we should just simply continue this." Uh, after the war, 
uh, in the peacetime economy. We'd get rid of all of the defects of, uh, of capitalism. We would produce goods that would be goods that met people's needs as opposed to according to profits. Uh, and it just it, and he went down the list of reasons why this would be a successful system. This was actually. What does that what, have to do with logical positivism? That's the part I'm confused about. Okay. Well, I, I was just going to say this is what promoted uh, uh, or prompted, uh, basically, Mises to, uh, to react uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to Neurath and, and, and write about socialism and the problems of socialism. Well, what does it, what does it have to do directly? Neurath would be critical of, and this was also true of Mitchell, by the way, of standard economics because it made reference to things like subjective value. Well, subjective value is something that's in somebody's mind, and it causes them to act. Well, if you're uh, scientific, you want to endorse instead of that sort of psychology, behaviorism, where you don't make reference to any kind of subjective values. What you do is make reference to observable states. So uh, the, the philosophical position of logical positivism emphasizes testing and making reference to observable phenomena and that same sort of uh, uh, approach within the they the interpretation was that that same sort of approach within the social sciences would be to uh, get rid of all of this kind of theory that all, all the kind of theory that made reference to things like subjective values which is basically what um Marginalism, yeah, neoclassical yeah. marginalism does. Sure. Okay, so I got that now. Let's go back. So back to the Abuse of Reason project. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so the, that was going to be the first volume. The second volume was to say, what are the consequences in the 20th century? And that would be based on an article that Hayek had written in the late 30s called Freedom in the Economic System. That part two ends up being the road to serfdom. He ends up not finishing part one about the spread of these ideas from country to country. He did a little bit on, on France, and he has an article on scientism and the study of society, but he, he doesn't finish that big first volume. And the second volume, it, it about you know, 1941-42, he says uh, in a letter to Mockleb, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really, actually, he had, he had a, he, he says to Mockleb, he's, he's changed his mind, he's going to do the second volume as, as, a, as a short, more popular piece, and he explains it why in a letter to Jacob Feiner, another American, uh, an American economist, saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not so worried about uh, the outcome of the war. I'm a little bit more worried now about the outcome of the peace. Yeah, and what things are going to look like uh, here." Because he was hearing the same sorts of arguments. Uh, well, we should continue planning in after World War II of the sort of planning that we've got here in the during the war period. The same sort of arguments that had been made in in uh, in Vienna. Uh, by people like Neurath were being made by by uh, British socialists uh, you know, like Harold Lasky uh, in, the, in the in in Labour Party uh, uh, meetings and in in popular pamphlets. Uh, so he was afraid of what was going to happen after World War II was over. And of course, there was a great deal of romance about the economic success of the Soviet Union that turned out to be quite quite untrue, but at the right. time was was seen as a great a great. Goal for the that, West. that pretty much went away with the with the show trials and the and the uh, and the pact with Hitler. I mean, the the bloom was off the rose with the Soviet. That certainly in the earlier thirties, that was true. Uh, it was it was less easy to to have any kind of uh, sympathy with the Soviets, except for the fact that <clears throat> they were allies against Hitler. Yeah. By uh, during the war. Okay, so we get to he writes the road to serfdom in nineteen forty. It comes out in nineteen forty four as part of this project. Right. Nineteen forty seven, we have the Mont Pelerin Society. Right. 
And he leaves LSE, I think, in 1950. Yes. And where does he, where does he go from there? He goes from there to, uh, well, for a semester, he's at the University of Arkansas uh, really? because they had very uh, uh, lax uh, divorce laws uh, in that <laughs> state. So that was one reason why he, he spent a little time there. That but, would make a good movie. I'd like to see that. <laughs> Hayek well, right in along Arkansas. there with love, love, love Story for Friedrich Hayek. Yeah, you. there you go. So go ahead. So, <laughs> so he goes on to the, uh, to the University of Chicago where he's on the Committee for Social Thought. It's not and in the he, economics department. Not in the economics department, no. He, I mean, that, that's another one of those juicy stories that we, we wish we had more information about exactly why the economics department declined to invite him um, when it was first being proposed in, say, 48 or so. Uh, and there's all sorts of, of explanations that have been proffered. Um, uh, so some of them are uh, that uh, they didn't like being asked by somebody from outside to hire this guy because he was getting outside funding. That actually sounds very plausible to me. Others say, well, uh, it was because of the type of economics he was doing, and particularly given the Coles uh, Commission uh, was at that time at Chicago, they were very, they're, they're basically the, the group of econometricians. Obviously, they were not going to be as sympathetic to Hayek's uh, work because Hayek was... Uh, one of these people who didn't have much faith in, in, in econometrics at the time. So that's a possibility. Another possibility is is uh, uh, the road to surfman had discredited him. I don't think that's true. Friedman uh, himself had said he didn't think that that played a role. But there's been all sorts of conjectures about why. But it, Because it but, was popular, not because they disagreed with it, but because it was too popular work, right? Well, it was a, the road to surfdom was viewed as a reactionary work at the time it was published. Uh, it's one of the thing. It's one of the ways in which you can really measure how the the world has changed. Uh, I had a great conversation with the historian of economics, Mark Blog, when I was editing the Road to Serfdom, and I said, "You know, I'm I'm doing this work uh, for the High Collected Works, uh, and it's fascinating." He said, oh, "God, I read that book, and I it was just a it was garbage. It was just so reactionary." And I said, "But well, you ought to try reading it now." And see what you think. And he came back to me and said, geez, you know, you're right. I mean, it, but, you know, if you read, read it in, in that particular period where everybody who's uh, a member of the intelligentsia says, we don't know exactly what system we want to put into place, but it's probably going to be some sort of uh, system. mixed system. <laughs> and, and, you have, and you have Hayek saying, well, uh, you know, um, this is potentially the road to serfdom, certainly the way he was read was that uh, if you do this, you're going to be like the Nazis. <laughs> you know, people who have these kinds of feelings are going to end up setting up a situation in which the, the jackboots are going to be um, uh, on the ground in, in, in Britain. And, uh, and that was the... I, I contest uh, the, some of the specific readings that people have made about what... Uh, Hayek's intent was in the road to serfdom, but that was the popular image of it. Mm -hmm. And and you could and if you go in reading it with that popular image, um, well, a lot of people didn't even read it. You know, they just knew it was going to be something that they disagreed with. You yeah. see a lot of that too. Sorry, kind of got that's off on right. a tangent there. No, that's good. Keep going. So uh, he comes to Chicago to yep. the Committee on Social Thought, which is an interdisciplinary uh, department at, yep. at Chicago, which has a few of them, and that's one of them. Yep. Uh, and he's there for how long? Until 1962, and the major uh, uh, things that were published while he was there 
or early his his book on psychology, the sensory order, published in 1952, and then his his big book uh, that is on uh, kind of political theory, political philosophy, and history, uh, the Constitution of Liberty. Constitution of Liberty. One way to think of it is uh, uh, some people who knew Hayek as a good scholar and read The Road to Serfdom more sympathetically, like, as it turns out, John Maynard Keynes, uh, who was quite complimentary about The Road to Serfdom uh, in a letter to Hayek, uh, said, but really, the real question is, uh, how much planning by the state do we allow? You, you say there's good planning, planning for a competitive order, and bad planning. How do we distinguish among these? What kind of criteria could we use to, to distinguish among them? Uh, how do we know the, the good stuff from the bad stuff? You're, you've offered a good criticism of socialism, but we need to know more about what your vision of a good society is. And the Constitution of Liberty, in some sense, uh, is a is a way of responding to that. Not not a direct response, but it's certainly not a blueprint, but it, it, it lays out the principles of a free society in a way that I think is uh, uh, you know, quite quite compelling. And then where does he go? 16. Well, and from there, uh, in 1962, he, uh, he leaves Chicago, goes to the University of Freiburg, uh, stays there through most of the 60s. He spends about five years in Salzburg, uh, then goes back to Freiburg. Uh, in 74 is when he gets the Nobel Prize. This is jointly with a with a Swedish economist named Gunnar Myrdal. Uh, uh, a Swedish sociologist, right? Really? Uh, sort of an economist. His, his, he wrote about monetary equilibrium. He had a, big, a book on monetary equilibrium published in the 1930s at the same time that, that you know, Hayek was writing on monetary economics. So the prize itself actually mentions that both of them made important contributions to economic theory early in their career and then later in their career that they branched out and looked at other areas. So it's basically it's basically putting them in the same kind of uh, camp as economists who then made broader contributions. And neither one of them actually turns out uh, were particularly happy about the fact no. that they had the other, <laughs> other one as a, as Mur- a, a co-recipient. Murdoch was a socialist. Correct. Basically, basically, yeah. yeah. Okay, so so he wins the Nobel Prize, and at that is he? Where is he at that point? Um, Hayek is. Uh, do you mean Hayek? Yeah. Uh, at that point, he would have just uh, either just been at the end of his time in Salzburg, or just moved back to Freiburg. Okay, and then. And, but in terms of his intellectual life, he he uh, in the mid sixties, he's he's started working a lot on on on. Uh, Individual articles on ideas about complex phenomena, but also on his his final uh, great uh, uh, work in political uh, philosophy, law, legislation, and liberty, which was published in three volumes uh, in seventy three, seventy six, and seventy eight. I think so. He was in the midst of uh, of putting that out, and then at the very end of uh, the seventies, he has a an idea of uh, a grand debate between the socialists and liberals, classical liberals. And he tries to put this together unsuccessfully, uh, but it, it is the impetus for his absolute final work, uh, The Fatal Conceit, which ends up being published in 1988. You mentioned I'm the general editor of the, of the Hayek Collected Works. This was the first volume in the Hayek Collected Works. His last, his last book was, uh, was published as the first volume, and it was edited by, uh, by uh, a guy named... W. W. Bartley III, Bill Bartley, who uh, was a philosopher who uh, studied under Popper, 
uh, and was to have been Popper's biographer as well as Hayek's biographer. Had lots of interviews with with Hayek that uh, have have appeared in various places. They're quite quite rich, um, and uh, was also going to be the editor of the Collected Works. But then he ends up dying, uh, uh, actually before Hayek does. He dies in 1991. Hayek died in. In 1992, so that's uh, there was another uh, editor. Uh, uh, Stephen Kresge was the second editor of the Collected Works, and then I took over from Kresge uh, in the early 2000s. And so, you know, when the when law legislation Liberty comes out, he's 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 an he's an old man. He's in his late 70s by the time the last volume comes out. Right. Um, the Fatal Conceit comes out when he's 89. Yeah. And there is, of course, uh, for for Hayek fans out there, it's well known that there's some dispute about how much of that book is is Hayek and how much is Bartley. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned uh, before we started our talk that you had spent some time in the Hayek archives, and one of the things that you will find out there are about a gazillion uh, little uh, uh, postcards or, looked, or yeah. three by five cards, yeah, index cards. I looked <laughs> index at index cards. That's right. That 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 he would write down his thoughts on and uh, then organize them whenever he was writing anything. Well, this this works well if you're Hayek working from these things, but when you've got... Basically, by 1985, his health really deteriorated. He didn't really even travel for the next seven years until he died. But even before that, you can see this a little bit in the in the... Uh, 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 Charlotte Cubitt, his his secretary's uh, memoirs about his his mental capacity, uh, kind of weakening in the even in the early eighties, and uh, uh, in in her uh, recounting, uh, he would hand her things and ask her to kind of sharpen up the English. She was a, a person who was his secretary, but she was a somebody who who was a native English speaker, so she would do it, and then he'd go back and forth between the two of them, and then Bartley was getting involved in terms of trying to organize these uh, these file cards as well. And you can tell from the book itself, it doesn't have any footnotes. Uh, it, it has these little indented uh, uh, parts that uh, I, I, I presume were things that were taken off these cards. So it's, it's just very hard. And, and there are elements of the book that anyone who knows Bartley's work are very Bartleyan. Talking the discussion of evolutionary ethics, which appears at the end of one of the chapters, is is pure Bartley. So there there is there is uh, uh, certainly debate about how much of this should be taken as uh, an important piece of Hayek's, or, uh, uh, just because of its mixed mixed uh, uh, answer. <laughs> the fact that so many different people contributed to it. I want to say two things about it, and then I want to I want to go back and we'll we'll start talking about Hayek's ideas, but. Uh, one is to me, it's the most readable of Hayek's books, which yep. um, is not, which is consistent with having it being either highly edited or worse written by someone else. Um, and other than those passages which you refer to, which are very Bartley-esque in intellectual tone, it's certainly true in intellectually to to Hayek's work. So it's not it's not a betrayal. There's nothing in it that is. That seems to contradict things that, to my eye, that Hayek had written before. Uh, I just find it to be a remarkably provocative. You could even call it a restatement of many ideas Hayek had written. So whether he literally wrote it or whether you could view it as a uh, an overview of some of his ideas, I find it very rich. 
Yes. I mean, those who are familiar with Hayek's work will see all sorts of elements in it that have appeared in his earlier works and, as you say, uh, expressed in, 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 uh, in clear uh, prose. Uh, uh, you know, if you take the, the epilogue to Law, Legislation, and Liberty, uh, whole elements of that are, are clearly there in the fatal conceit, for example. And there, are, and there are extensions that would build on that, where he starts to refer to talking about cultural evolution and talking to more recent work that may have appeared that would help support some of the ideas that he that he had about that. So I, I'm, I'm with you on on that. The, the the question is to what extent did he himself, in fact, endorse the new ideas that are there in the fatal conceit? I think that's the only question. It's not so much that he's reversing himself anywhere. It's that how important are these ideas that hadn't appeared in his earlier work uh, to? His, his, his belief system. And just two other comments. One is, uh, it's a suggestion of a friend. I tried to read Bartley's uh, work. I think it's called Return to Commitment. Is mm-hmm. that the name of it? It's very retreat, different. Retreat, retreat to Commitment. Retreat to Commitment, which is a very Hayekian, uh, has a very Hayekian thesis about uh, the abuse of reason. And uh, I found it very difficult going. So it does, it's, it's not like Bartley was a lucid uh, most lucid of phrase makers. So that's one comment. Second comment I'll make, which um, is that you know the fatal conceit has one of my has two of my favorite Hayek quotes. One about the micro and macro cosmos, mm-hmm. uh, which which I think I found a version of in the uh, in the note cards. Uh, it's not ex- literally word for word, mm-hmm. but the other, of course, and that's about the dangers of taking socialism out, the, the love of family into the larger community. That socialism, the idea of socialism is so deeply appealing to us because we have this love of family and we should treat everyone like family. And he calls that the road to tyranny. He calls that, you know, says that will lead to tyranny and similarly doesn't want to import the model of prices into the family. And that this schizophrenia is, is the, is the, what we have to deal with as humans. That, I love that quote. Mm-hmm. But the other quote, of course, is the curious task of economics is to illustrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Yep. That quote, I couldn't find in the note cards. There are hundreds, thousands. There's there's yeah, a lot of them uh, that were them. that are there in the archive. So I can't say I looked at every one of them. But again, that's not the most stylistically elegant quote. It's very Hayekian in structure. So <laughs> there we go. I'm hopeful that it's his. <laughs> yeah. I like to think it's his. I mean, right. anyway, one comment on his life before we turn to his ideas, I want you to to comment on is his uh, winning of the Nobel Prize. He must have been in many ways a very lonely man, at least intellectually. You've given in this brief sketch so many cases where he was viewed as a reactionary, he was debating with so-and-so, he was aligned against the intelligentsia, all the intellectual circles that he swam in. He wasn't in the the one place that might have embraced him intellectually, philosophically, might have been the economics department at Chicago, at least in the 60s or 70s. It's not when he was there. He wasn't even in the economics department. Winning the Nobel Prize must have been quite satisfying i think i think it it was talk about that well indeed in his interviews um he he mentions that uh you know he actually felt that he was depressed in in parts of the 1960s and uh this this had physical um uh aspects to it that uh, uh but he said you know i i think 
uh, winning the Nobel Prize. I believe this is true that he said in an interview that this this kind of made made things better. That he felt better. I think probably um, equally important though is that he was aware of the rebirth of interest in Austrian economics that was starting to take place in the 1970s. And you know, I, I was at NYU from 1981 to 1982. Uh, Ludwig Lachmann would come to NYU every spring semester. I would, I would spend a, every Friday morning for a couple of hours in his office talking with him. It was fascinating, a uh, very rich uh, intellectual environment. There was lots of interesting people who were participating in the NYU seminars. And then there were these other things that were taking place in the summer, various sorts of summer schools. So he was aware of this. He was in Menlo Park for some of these you know, periods, uh, visiting uh, visiting at the Hoover. Uh, and and he, um, I think that that really uh, made him feel like perhaps things were, were turning around. And this was important because a lot of the 70s was fairly depressing in terms of economics. Late sure. 60s and 70s were quite depressing for well, him. Keynes was continuing to be triumphant. His ideas were continuing to be triumphant. And the economy in the 60s was doing great. And But the 70s saw this much darker turn. And, uh, yeah, it must have been, it must have been pretty, um, pretty unpleasant. Right, and and I should I, one thing that I didn't mention was the publication of denationalization of money in uh, in the seventies as well when he when he really is is a time that he's returning to issues of monetary economics and talking about competitive issue of of currency um, uh, as as a reaction to the stagflation of the nineteen seventies. So. Which is consistent with with his earlier work uh, about the central bank's role in the business well, cycle, and it, this part is a little bit tricky because he he actually wrote different things at different periods of time in his life about monetary arrangements. Um, you see different things from the '30s to the '50s to the '70s. Uh, Ludwig Lachmann always had a delightful man. Uh, when we would talk about certain issues, I'd say, "Well, we, what do you think Hayek thought about this?" And he'd say, "Which Hayek?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> so the, the different Hayek, different points in time, Hayek sure. had different uh, different ideas. But uh, so anyway, let, let's talk about his. We've touched on many of them already, but let's talk about which of his many ideas are still important and relevant today, and certainly sure. part of his legacy. Sure. Well, um, something that has been getting lots of attention uh, in the recent downturn is Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, I think there are certain elements of it that uh, are uh, still quite interesting anyway to, to consider given the recent events, the whole idea that uh, the downturns take place when uh, interest rates, the market rate of interest is held below the natural rate would be the way somebody in a Vixellian framework would put it, but basically uh, uh, long periods of low interest rates end up affecting the structure of uh, production in ways that are not sustainable. Uh, you get too many, uh, you get a misallocation of capital goods is the way it, it was in his model. Uh, if you take a look at the at the uh, American and other countries' uh, housing glut, this would be uh, uh, you know a very good portrait of the sort of idea that he had in mind. Um, uh, certainly, uh, uh, the idea that you can um, uh, uh, somehow uh, stimulate your way out of the out of these uh, 
sorts of problems was not something. And this this is a controversial point, and this is something where you would need to have Larry White on your program. We have. have him. We've, okay. we've talked about this. What his <laughs> view was, it's, it's, and it's complex. <laughs> it is complex. So maybe I'll I'll just I'll just refer your listeners right now to your your podcast with Larry White to go well, into the details we'll, of. <laughs> we'll put a link up to that. But what what I wanted to what I wanted to mention and and, and I'll let you comment on is that while he may have gone back and forth on his own position on what can be done you know in a proactive way right. it's he doesn't seem to have ever endorsed um the Keynesian aggregate demand stimulus story right. and in his Nobel prize uh, lecture uh explicitly mentions the challenges of um, solving unemployment by spending money in any in any permanent I mean, just way. Just dealing with aggregates. I mean, he distrusted the, the the whole notion of aggregates, and you can see this back in his writings, even in the 1920s, before the Great Depression came along. That these that this is the the idea that you can manipulate something as complex as an economy by looking at aggregate statistics, which actually in and them's of the in and of themselves are constructions of a theory, of of a, of a person's mind. Is, is something that he rejected uh, throughout. So I think that's exactly right. And, of course, the Keynesian program depended crucially on this and, and, and stimulated the, the collection of these aggregate statistics that were supposed to be used by policymakers to fine-tune the economy. So, so that's right. So we have his contribution to business cycle theory and his, and his skepticism about um, Keynesianism, for sure. Sure. Um, if we go further from there, uh, as I said in the kind of overview of his life, in his debates in the 1930s, I think he came up with additional arguments about uh, the, the limitations of socialism. Some of these were building on uh, Mises' arguments. Uh, so if we recall, Mises said, well, when you've got state ownership of the means of production, which is what socialism is, uh, you don't have prices for factors of production. If you don't have prices for factors of production, firms can't make uh, rational decisions about uh, uh, what input mixes they need to make. And when you multiply the millions of firms uh, in the economy uh, and the sorts of decisions that each of them has to make and their interdependence, you've got, you've got real problems. Now, a response to this by someone uh, named Oscar Longa, who we mentioned, a, a market socialist, said, well, wait a second. Yeah, we ought to, have, we ought to put a bust of, uh, this was one of his famous lines, we ought to put a bust of von Mises's von Mises in the uh, central hall of the central planning uh, ministry for pointing out the importance of prices, but we don't need to worry about uh, about uh, getting rid of socialism because we can simply adjust prices up and down if we see uh, an oversupply of goods. Uh, we will adjust prices. We see an undersupply of goods. We'll adjust prices in the other direction. And we can just simply make these adjustments and uh, just duplicate the, the workings of the economy. And this was precisely where Hayek uh, came into the into the debate uh, and said, "Well, you know, you, this is your 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 image of what we're able to do is unrealistic." And I think the best statement, although this is not directly responsive so much to Longa, of of his idea is contained in. Uh, the use of knowledge in society. Yep. So I know later you're going to ask me which which things people should read. That would be the first one that yep. that they should read. And and in it he he uh, uh, paints a picture of how easy it would be. All of these allocation problems would be easy if we had 
full information. If we had, if given tastes and preferences, given incomes, given this, says, and this is what our models often say we have. Okay, the kinds assume, of yeah. theoretical models that that we use say, okay, given this, given that, given that, here's the equilibrium. He says, well, the whole point in the world is that in fact uh, we don't have this knowledge. That the the way the world is actually configured is knowledge is dispersed. So different people have different bits of knowledge. Uh, and some of their knowledge is inconsistent with other people's knowledge. Some people are think it's going to be a, 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 a very hot summer, so they're going to be producing suntan lotion. Other people anticipate a cold summer, so they'll be in producing umbrellas. Some of them are going to be wrong. How do all these decisions ever get, get meshed? On top of it, and this is stuff that he adds later, um, this, this local knowledge, knowledge of time and place, some of it is, is tacit, and this was you yeah. know, reflecting the, the ideas of Polanyi later, uh, that uh, yeah, knowledge that, that I, I have been working in this particular market for 20 years. I know these market signs. I might not be able to, to explicate to somebody else why, but I have enough knowledge of these markets to, to make these particular decisions. So this is what all, all these individuals with their little bits of knowledge, are making these decisions. That's the first half of the story. The second half of the story is, well, what do they base it on? They see all these prices that are out there in the, in, the, in the world, in their little corner of the world that they're responding to, but every one of those people's actions feeds into those prices. Somebody's buying more, somebody's buying less. All of that feeds into the prices that everybody else sees. And this is an ongoing, complex process. And this is the this is the the marvel, as he put it in that in that uh, yeah. article, of the of the price mechanism that it is at, on the one hand something that we look at this array of prices to make our decisions, but then all of our decisions get reflected in this array of prices. It's constantly changing, constantly changing. And so he says. Basically, you can understand then his response to Longa would be, well, <laughs> good yeah. luck, buddy. <laughs> good luck, buddy. <laughs> the biggest luck, computer buddy. in the world isn't going to help you solve that problem. Well, it, I mean, it's it, and and you know, later people have said, well, why? You know, supercomputers can do this now. Maybe we can do it. And I think that the answer to that is, show me, yeah. <laughs> show me, show me in a township where that could happen. Uh, and no less the world economy or a national economy. And that um, really brings us to his. The other idea that you and I talked about before we started this interview, which is the idea of emergent order, this idea that there are things that are the product of human action but not human design, and that the price system, which is a – and Hayek struggled with this just like we all do. That, that, that we, Once you put the word system in there, you start to suggest, well, someone must have created the system, mm-hmm. but that it's not created by any one person. It's instead the result of all of our actions interacting together, that that phenomenon is the central – Understanding that is the central problem of social science. Well, I think that's that's uh, that certainly hits the nail exactly on the head. And uh, uh, so, other examples of this are something like uh, the formation of money. And Adam Smith and Carl Menger both talked about you know how money emerges in order to not because somebody invents it, but because it enables people to um, solve problems. So, if I if I want scotch and uh, I produce running shoes and you're the scotch producer but you want a table i have to take my running shoes to somebody who produces a table to you know, i got this three-way trade problem money allows I'm actually us to, the consumer of the scotch but that's what i want to say for the record <laughs> well the I, I, you see now this is an even worse case 
where both of us are consumers <laughs> of stuff. But uh, uh, so uh, you, you you end up getting this. Uh, you end up by having. Uh, the emergence of money, uh, specialization, trade is enhanced, division of labor is enhanced. You get these remarkable results that redound to everyone's benefit, but it's not like anyone went out and, and invented it. So the unintended consequences, uh, uh, consequences of human action, but not of human design. So market prices are, are a similar phenomenon. The language uh, is often pointed at as one of these social institutions that... Which, uh, which you write Menger used as an example. I believe that's right. I that's first right. encountered it in Thomas Sowell's book, uh, Knowledge and Decisions, which is a right. Hayekian book, mm-hmm. but it, it goes back to at least Menger. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and yeah, Hayek was uh, off... Uh, Often uh, remarking on Darwinians before Darwin too, in terms of some of these ideas that that sure. end up uh, being in, in social phenomena before they entered into uh, the, the writings of natural scientists. So, um, uh, yeah, this is a a central idea in his work. Uh, 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 Steve Harwitz has has mentioned uh, how his writings about the capital structure. Uh, reflect the same sort of um, hierarchical structure that is not, you know, it, it's, it, it can be changed, but it can't be changed quickly, and it's all interconnected. Uh, certainly Hayek's work on the sensory order, where he describes the working of of human consciousness, where, you know, if you look around uh, the room, you see chairs and, and rugs and, and, and pictures on the wall, but actually this is the product of uh, a gazillion uh, neuronal firings uh, in a hugely hierarchical system that end up uh, producing consciousness as we know it. Um, uh, certainly the synapses are not planning to produce consciousness, but it, but it does. So he, he sees this sort of, this sort of uh, uh, complex self-organizing systems in natural phenomena as well as social phenomena, and that certainly became a, a hugely important theme in his uh, later work and, and something that, for example, people who are... Uh, working at Santa Fe uh, on on complex social orders, uh, you know, when they when they read Hayek, I'm sure they just say, "Yeah, this is the this is the kind same sort of ideas that we're getting at." So we have the business cycle theory, the uh, the threat of uh, excuse me the the infeasibility, the impracticality of socialism. Right. Tied to that, we have the idea that that there are these emergent orders that are undesigned, but yet productive and, and crucial to civilization that are steered unintendedly by – it's a horrible sentence – but by prices and other social constructs. Um, anything else you want to emphasize of his well, ideas? Well, sure. I, I think it, uh, a central part of Hayek's uh, mission was to reconstruct liberalism for the 20th century. So he, like many people, Jacob Viner, uh, Rupke – um, Keynes, uh, rejected pure laissez-faire. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that they believe that there should, and if you asked each of them, they might come up with different sets of institutions, but each of them believed that a you know, market system works well if it's embedded within a set of other social institutions. And uh, these are things like a democratic polity, uh, you know, well uh, well-defined and protected uh, system of property rights, where the property rights are exchangeable, stable monetary uh, uh, arrangements, uh, uh, a, a operating under the rule of law, where uh, everyone is equal under the law, where there's a pro- uh, protected private sphere of interaction, where you justify gov- government coercion only if it is used 
to end coercion of people by other people. Uh, that that's the direct uh, uh, reason for government. Co- you 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 give the monopoly of coercion to the government so that it can try to do good in terms of of minimizing other sorts of coercion. Um, so he he came up with ideas uh, about uh, the sets in in very general terms about the sets of institutions that need to accompany a market for markets to work well. And this is also where he becomes uh, a controversial figure among some in the Austrian camp because, uh, as, as, as I, I, he will remain nameless, but as a, a close friend of mine uh, in the Austrian camp puts it, put it about the Constitution of Liberty, he loved his Hayek's defense of liberty in, in the first two-thirds of the book, and then he gave it all away in the last third of the book. So he, he, he actually did not uh, uh, add on to his... Um, he, he would allow for a lot more government intervention uh, on grounds that he said, well, you know, I might disagree with it personally, but it would be permitted um, uh, uh, it, it, under a system in, in terms of the way I'm defining it within this book and not be inconsistent with, uh, with liberty. And for somebody for whom, uh, uh, it, for example, taxation is, the, is, the, is a form of coercion, uh, uh, he wasn't uh, he, much of an anarcho-capitalist. He was not an anarcho-capitalist, precisely but he, right. But as he wrote, he was not a conservative either. He was somewhere in between uh, his own kind of classical liberal, his own kind of libertarian. Right, and he didn't like the word libertarian either, apparently. Yeah, he liked, <laughs> Old Whig, that was the phrase he, he liked to use, which of course <laughs> just makes everybody... Yeah, that ain't uh, coming back. That is not going to make it into the general no, lexicon. I don't, I don't think, think so. Um, let me propose one other idea, which is certainly consistent with what we've talked about, but th- that I view as an important contribution of, of Hayek. We talked about the idea of scientism, uh, which is this idea that, that it's dangerous to use the tools of science for purposes that they're not uh, useful for or successful at, at pursuing, which would include, I think, much of macroeconomics for Hayek, on, on fortu- modern macroeconomics. Um, but the whole abuse of reason project, even though he never wrote those books, uh, wrote that book the way he intended the first volume, certainly much of his uh, – of his, many of his essays and his books in the 1950s onward period were about a skepticism about the power of reason and, and expertise, um, very much in what, what I see as the pragmatist school, not meaning practical but – in the common sense, but in the right. philosophical sense of of being uh, respectful of tradition and culture, uh, even when reason seems to suggest it could be improved, is that a fair assessment? Yes, I, I think you're you're exactly right. And indeed, my interest in Hayek, my my earlier work before I was uh, writing about Hayek was in a strange field called economic methodology, and it had to do with what does it mean to be a science, and is economics a science, and how, how do we how do we talk about that. And it seemed to me that um, Hayek's basic insight, going way back to the 20s, so a lot of the way that my book, um, Hayek's Challenge is Structured, is, is pursuing this, this theme through, through time, is about the limits of social science, what we can do as opposed to what we, we <laughs> wish we could do, be yeah. able to do. So just exactly. the, the, that quote that you like so much from The Fatal Conceit yeah. um, is, is very much, I think, uh, a central Hayekian uh, insight and it, you know he talked about scientism in the in the forties and he contrasted the social sciences with the natural sciences. I argue in my book that by the fifties 
he was no longer drawing it as a contrast between natural and social sciences, but instead a contrast between sciences that study simple versus those that study complex orders and uh, complex phenomena. And it's with the latter of which economics was included. He said often, you know, you, you can make pattern predictions, but we can't make specific predictions. We can't do any of the things that we would need to do if we were trying to intervene successfully in social phenomena. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a, a central insight, and I think uh, uh, it is a sobering one yeah. uh, because uh, it, it, it really does uh, uh, try to force people to think about what would we need to be able to know in order to accomplish this sort of change. Hayek said, yeah, you look at the world and you, 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 you say, boy, it could be better. But he says, yeah, you have to really ask that question before you, you commit resources. And then, it, you know, I, I, I have to finally add, it seems to me that the Hayekian and Austrian insights are very good here, but if you couple them with the, with the kind of public choice insights about how actual decisions get made in government and the sorts of interests and, and the effects that they have on policies... It, it ends up making you really depressed <laughs> about the prospects for for successful government intervention, and and I think this this is what um, is is the foundation for people who say, look, it's it's not so much I think government is is necessarily malign. It's just it's so difficult to get it right. You don't have the knowledge, and and you have interests that are having these these effects. Maybe a smaller government will will at least allow less of that kind of manipulation to occur. And. Certainly, it's always worth mentioning that Hayek was not against planning. Um, he was against central planning for most right. things, and he believed that the less there was of that, the more we could plan, which is yeah. where he thought the local knowledge was. And so it's just important to mention that. The more it, the state plans, the less the, the more difficult planning is for individuals. This is one of his pithy statements from the uh, Road to Serfdom. And, and the other comment I'd make on the science debate is. To the extent economics is a science, it's it's more like biology than it's like physics. And we never ask biologists to do the things that we ask economists to do, right. which is if we plant 17 more redwoods in this forest, how many, you know, um, what's going to happen to the bird population in this corner? I mean, those are the kind of, that's the kind of precision biologists don't have, don't pretend to have. And that's 90% of what the world asks of economists. And like Hayek, I think we should just say we can't do that. But it's hard, I guess, for some people to to have those words come out of their mouth. Right. Um, let's talk about we're, – we're out of time, so fairly briefly. What um, what should people read to get to get started? Sure. Use of Knowledge in Society is certainly one. Which is available on our website at no charge, so we'll put a link up to that as we often do. Individualism, True and False. This is a, 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 an Essay. article that was – Essay that was published in 1945, I think, and uh, uh, actually published in 46. A lecture was delivered in 45. Uh, uh, lays out uh, uh, the contrast between uh, uh, the Scottish Enlightenment version of individualism that we've been discussing in terms of unintended consequences, and uh, versus the kind of uh, individualism that that is atomistic and and. In some ways, uh, you can view this as, as as a criticism of socialism, but it also could be a criticism, in some ways, of of 
the kind of ideas that underlie uh, uh, economic theory. Uh, actually, this book, Individualism and Economic Order, uh, that, contains right? a number of, of great essays. Uh, uh, the Meaning of Competition is one where he says, well, uh, you know, anyone who's studied introductory microeconomics has, has learned about uh, perfect competition and the assumptions that are made, and he says the worst thing you can do is to think that what you want to do is make the world look like that because actually uh, where real competition occurs is not in equilibrium. It's when you're out of equilibrium and it's rivalrous competition. So those are those are three uh, nice essays. Individualism, True and False, has some political theory as well in it. Uh, is kind of his, the, the movement from uh, from uh, uh, the road to serfdom to the constitution of liberty, you can view it as a, as a, as a step uh, moving in that direction. And if you didn't want to read all of the... Uh, the Road to Serfdom, you could take a look at Freedom in the Economic System, which was his 1939 essay in which he articulates some of the ideas that he uh, develops more fully in, in The Road to Serfdom. I would just add the pretense of knowledge as Nobel Prize lecture, oh, which lovely. I think is very right. You're uh, accessible exactly right. and has some of these ideas we've been talking about. And then in the books, what would you read? Well, you know, uh, All of them, of course. But. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I would Which, is say there an order, if, Is there an if, order you'd recommend? If if you're if you're a a beginning person, jeez, um, you want to read the road to serfdom, just because it's it's so much in the news. But if you had more time, I'd say either the Constitution of Liberty or Law, Legislation, and Liberty. People who are sympathetic to the Austrian viewpoint, really split <laughs> over which one of those they prefer. So I'm not going to make a judgment on that. Um, but well, either either one of those would be would be uh, uh, something. And there are individual chapters within within them that I think uh, kind of get at the Hayekian ideas. Now, it's only if you're really, uh, really have had a lot of, uh, of coffee uh, that you want to sit down and try to try to get through prices in production or the pure tough. theory of capital I, or the sensory order. I think monetary theory in the trade cycle is, is, is accessible mm-hmm. um, to some extent, but less than, than the other things that I mentioned first. And as you said, the federal conceit is, is, is certainly readable well, and it's it short. So, it makes me yeah. sad that uh, most people say, hmm, who's this Hayek guy? I'll read, I guess I'll read The Road to Serfdom, and many of you out there probably follow that path. I didn't find it a fraction as interesting as any of these essays or um, or the fatal conceit or law legislation liberty or the constitutional liberty. Yeah. I think those are better places to start. So if you're out there listening uh, – well, you know, Can I just uh, second that in this way too? Yeah. Um, for articles, Hayek has to really hit, hit the nail on the head. He has to say what he's going to say in a certain amount of space. Whereas with the books, I mean they can they, – he, he goes all over the place. He has lots of footnotes. It can be tedious, um, so I, I I just want to second that that if you get access to the articles, I think you're going to have a much much richer experience, and you're going to get uh, use of knowledge in society. I, I I have yet to find a person who reading that didn't say wow. My guest today has been Bruce Caldwell. Bruce, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Uh, great great again to be here, and uh, uh, send the scotch whenever you can, Russ. Will do. Okay. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. 
I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.